This Week at Hope Point. You want to know the secret to being unstained by the temptations of this world? Long for the life to come. Plead with God to free you from this body of decay and this world that is passing away. In doing so, you will find yourself so encouraged by the hope of glory, so focused on the age to come, so unimpressed by the flattery of this world, and so compelled to proclaim to the watching world, there's a way out. Be rescued. That's what people who are waiting on the Lord act like. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Caleb speaks to us from God's holy word. So as I said, we are back in Jude today. We're going to pick up in verse 17 and finish off the book. This is our last of of four messages on Jude. And so far, the first three have been all about the false teacher, the apostate, the, the lies sneaking into the church. And today we finally get to turn our attention to the church. Uh, We get addressed. What are we to do? How are we to respond? But in typical Jude fashion, before we can get there, we got to get a quick recap just in case you missed it. Um, Jude gives them one more reminder of what he spent the last 16 verses talking through. And so this will be kind of our quick crash course, if you will, just to recap the ground we've already covered. It says in verse 17 and 18, but you must remember, beloved, He loves using that phrase. He's already used it. He'll use it again to remind them of how much he loves them as the letter writer. He's writing these church members that he loves, but also how much they are loved by their father, how much God loves them. He says, remember these predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. He's reminding them, this is not a surprise to us that we're in this situation. These voices that are seeping into the church, that are slipping in, this shouldn't be a surprise. We, we were warned about this. We've been prepared for this. Jesus told us that. The apostles told us that. We heard it from Paul's writing, heard it from Peter's writing. Now we hear it from Jude. These voices, these false teachers, they will show up. So don't be surprised by it. Verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. So in in other words, to basically to wrap up all that he's already said about the false message and the false messengers, he's going to sort of sum it all up in typical Jude fashion. Remember what Jude loves? He loves those triplets, right? Remember we went over three of them last time. Well, he gives us another triplet here to just sort of recap. Who are these apostates? Who are the false ones? So quickly here, the first off, well, they're those who cause divisions. They create division within the body. And they do that, we've seen it, really in two ways. One, they they create a, a wall between themselves, the false teachers, and the true teachers, the true leaders who are faithful to Scripture. They build up a wall. They label those of us who are seeking to be faithful to God's Word as bigoted, archaic, old school, unloving, closed-minded, too rigid. And in so doing, they create a division between the truth and the phonies, and they make themselves look more appealing, so it creates division. But the other way they do this is because we've already seen these false teachers and the false ones within the church operate out of selfish, fleshly hearts, well, they long for their own good. They do what benefits them, which is the ultimate enemy to unity in the church. 
right? I mean, isn't that what creates unity within the body of Christ to put your needs behind that of the needs of the church, to put others before yourself? They don't do that. They're selfish in how they operate. And so by putting their own needs first, by building their own kingdom, well, they create divisions. Secondly, they're worldly people. They follow worldly passions, worldly instincts, worldly desires. We've seen this in our study already. Remember uh, the way they were described last time as those who reject authority. They defile the flesh. They believe they have their own special anointing. So who cares about what scripture says? I'll define good and bad, right and wrong. And so they operate like those of the world, giving in to all types of desires and sinful practices. They're worldly people. And then lastly, and really most severely, says they're devoid of the spirit. They're empty inside, dead spiritually. If you remember the, the metaphors we looked at last time, the waterless clouds and the fruitless trees, remember those? They, they have the appearance outwardly of bringing great promise and truth and caring for people, but really they're empty. The clouds never deliver the rain. The trees never produce fruit. Why? Because they're devoid of the spirit, spiritually dead. They're described by Paul in Romans 8 this way. Those who don't have the spirit. Notice here, he's contrasting someone filled with the spirit and someone full of the flesh, devoid of the spirit, the way Jude says it. So the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If you don't have the spirit, you're hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot So these false ones who are devoid of the spirit, they cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So see the contrast there. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you and anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So we see there those who are devoid of the spirit have to deal with all the negative statements of these verses. They can't please God. They're hostile to him. They're enemies of God. And this is what he says. He reminds us what the false teacher is. So we get that real quick wrapped up there. They create divisions. They're worldly people. And they're devoid of the spirit. And then he turns his attention to us finally with these words here. But you, beloved. There's that word beloved again. Now he's addressing us, those who are in Christ, the faithful bride, the church. What do you do? How do we respond? That's the opponent. What do we do? And he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. If you're looking at those two verses for the how-to, how are, what are we to do? How do we respond? Well, you'll see building yourselves up. You see praying in the spirit. You see this phrase, keep yourselves. And then you also see waiting. And so you might quickly look at that and say, well, there's the four points. There are the four things the believer ought to do. And some commentaries have gone that direction to say that this is four things that Jude is calling the believer to. But if you put your grammar glasses on and really look at the, the Greek that he wrote here, the structure of this sentence, Y'all know I used to be an English teacher, so I enjoy this kind of thing here. When we look at it, look at what we actually find. You here is the subject, the church, who he's talking to, the beloved ones. And if we find the verb, it's not building and it's not praying. The verb of this sentence is actually keep yourselves. 
All right, that's the actual verb of this sentence. It's an imperative verb. It's a, it's a command. He's saying, you keep yourselves in the love of God. And all this other stuff that you see, these other phrases, these are all participle phrases that modify it. So you got building yourselves up. You got praying in the spirit. And then you have waiting for the mercy of the Lord. Those, in fact, look like verbs. They're not verbs here. They're participle phrases that tell us how you keep yourselves. See how that works? Stay in school. It pays off to pay attention in English class. We really get to uncover the deeper meaning here, there. Glad I got my degree in that. Um, these three things here really are meant to modify or help point to what did he mean when he says, you keep yourselves in the love of God. He's going to give us three ways. So again, as Jude loves to do, there's another triplet, another one for you. The three things we do as believers to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, if you're anything like me, as soon as you hear that, that, that there's this command, you keep yourselves in the love of God. Maybe there's some red flags going off in your head. Hold up. Whose job is it to do the keeping? Do I keep myself in the love of God or does God keep me in the love of God? I mean, if you've been paying attention in Jude, back in verse one, he addressed this church that he's talking to as those who have been, are being kept for Jesus Christ. And then in the closing verses today, he'll say also, now to him who is able to keep you. So twice, this idea of being kept is something that God does for us, keeps us in the palm of his hand. But then in the middle, he says, you keep yourself in the love of God. So the question becomes, well, which is it? Does God keep us? from falling away or do we keep us from falling away? And Jews obvious and clear, no difficulty to understand answer is uh, yes, you do. And yes, he does. We're gonna have to look at what these other three things are that modify it to really understand what he means by that. Obviously we know that if it were up to us, we'd find a way to mess it up and we would fall away Ultimately, we got to acknowledge God as the source that keeps us, but we cannot diminish our responsibility to be kept. There's a great quote by my favorite guy, Charles Spurgeon, on this note. He says, oh, be not rashly self-confident, Christian man. Be as confident as you can in your God, but be distrustful of yourself. You may yet become all that is vile and vicious unless sovereign grace prevent and keep you to the end. But remember, if you have been preserved, the crown of your keeping belongs to the shepherd of Israel and you know who that is. The shepherd of Israel. He would go on when he preaching on this to, to quote Isaiah 27, three, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I am the keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. So does Christ keep the believer? Does he keep the church from falling away? Does he keep it watered and guarded from being punished? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Ultimately, it begins there. Without him keeping us, we would all fall away. And yet we're told to keep ourselves. So let's look very quickly at those three little participle phrases, building 
praying and waiting to see how it is that God and us work together to do the keeping. First off, we've got building yourselves up in your most holy faith. This is the work of edifying the believer, building them up, or as Paul would put it in Acts. He says, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. There's that phrase again, build you up. And the result is to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice God's role in this, in building you up and in providing us with what? The word of his grace, the means by which the, build, the, the believer builds up his faith or builds up her faith is by being built up on the word of God. This is what God has provided for us to grow a solid foundation for our faith to be sustained, to not give in. That's how we're built up, the word of God. It's what he's he's talking about back in Jude 3, where he said, I appeal to you to contend for the faith. The thing we've been called to fight for is the faith, which we defined as the word of God, the gospel, everything pertaining to what Jesus has done to rescue sinners and restore relationship with God. That is the faith. And we build ourselves up on that faith by being saturated by it, by growing in our understanding of it, by going deeper in our understanding of the gospel, not moving on to other things, but but going deeper and deeper in our understanding of the gospel, what exactly Christ has done on our behalf. And as we see it more and more, what we find happening is that we grow in our understanding of it, which leads to us growing in our appreciation of it, which leads to us growing in our affection for it, and then ultimately our literacy and confidence in it to be able to speak it and proclaim it to others. So we build up our faith by being saturated by God's word that he provided for us. It's his word. So you see there, God and us working together for us to be kept. You'll see that that partnership in 1 Peter when he speaks about the inheritance that awaits us, that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time there. Notice what God is doing, keeping our inheritance for us in heaven and guarding us so that we do not fall away. We don't slip through the cracks. But notice what else is at play, God's power and our faith. So as we build up our faith by growing in God's word, There's a tag team effort here of God's power working through our faith as we grow in in Christ's likeness through his word and we are kept. Easy enough? Back to the second one here. And praying in the Holy Spirit. I know as soon as you see praying in the Holy Spirit, some of you think he's talking about speaking in tongues. So before you start jumping around and and shouting, uh, that's not quite what he's getting at here. Praying in the Holy Spirit here is more about praying in unison with the Holy Spirit, praying according to the will or in submission to the Holy Spirit. It's a recognition that for the believer, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And Romans says that, that it's the Holy Spirit who is interceding on your behalf, who knows what you need before you can even, even utter it. 
And so when we pray in the Holy Spirit, again, there's that, that communal work of us and God together working on keeping us. As the Spirit prays on our behalf and we pray in unison with the Spirit, we're ultimately praying for the will of God because the will of the Spirit is the same as the will of God. And therefore, we're praying just like Jesus, the Son of God, who said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're growing in our unison and in our intimacy with God. And we're being kept by hearing from him in his word, building up our faith in his word, and by speaking to him in prayer. Both of these are drawing a deeper, closer, more intimate connection with him and keeping us. And they're his means of also him keeping us and us keeping ourselves, working here together. You see the teamwork here of being kept and keeping, us doing our part because God does his part. But then thirdly, you'll notice waiting for the mercy of our Lord. The third way we keep ourselves and the third way that God equips us to be kept is our waiting on the Lord or Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We are anticipating expectantly his return and the eternal life that comes with that. The believer, the true believer is someone who is longing, longing desperately to be reunited with Christ today. Longing for heaven today. Gosh, I wish our affections for Christ and his kingdom could be stirred that we could say that. I I want to go home today. Most of us can't say that. Because if we're honest, our inclinations are to put down roots here. Which exposes that we just have too much affection for this life. Jesus, please take us home. Just don't do it today. Or as the great philosopher, Kanae Chesney would say, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. To which I say, if you don't want to go to heaven right now, you don't want to go at all. The true believer sees clearly how far superior the life to come is in comparison to the life we now live. And they say, Jesus, take us home. I long to be relieved of this life, this body, this world. We wait expectantly on him. And that's one of the primary ways he keeps us. You want to know the secret to being unstained by the temptations of this world? Long for the life to come. Plead with God to free you from this body of decay and this world that is passing away. In doing so, you will find yourself so encouraged by the hope of glory. So focused on the age to come so unimpressed by the flattery of this world and so compelled to proclaim to the watching world, there's a way out, be rescued. That's what people who are waiting on the Lord act like. That's the attitude of their heart. I mean, you you hear this urgency in Jesus's words as well. Luke 12, this is what he says about being ready, waiting on his return. He says, stay dressed for action, And keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast 
so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. We got to be awake, ready, standing at the, at the door, lamps burning, knowing that his return is certain, longing for it. We don't want to drift off to sleep, wander off with the world. We wait with eyes fixed on heaven and glory and the inheritance. So I will not drift off to slumber. And that's how Christ keeps us keeping ourselves in his hands by building up our faith, praying in the spirit and waiting expectantly on his return. There's his second triplet of the day. That's how we look at ourselves, the church. But then we, again, we've seen the world. Now we got to look at ourselves. Who are we in light of that? And then we got to look back outward and say, how do we respond? What do we do with those who are on the outside? What do we do with those who are doubting, who are questioning, who are dabbling, who are experimenting? Should I walk away? Or maybe they already have walked away. Or maybe they have abandoned the name. What do we do with them? Do we just bombard ourselves in and lock the doors? Or is there another way? So... My guess is Jude's going to give us a triplet, as he always does. And if you look at verses 22 and 23, you should see it. There it is. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He's going to give us three more things to do. This is what Jude loves to do. Makes my preaching easier, too, because if I had told you all from the beginning, I got a nine-point sermon Y'all are zoning out real quick, but I just keep surprising you with another triplet and it just keep getting more points. But we'll hit these quickly. He wants us to do three things here. Show mercy, snatch people from the fire and stay clean. Show mercy, snatch from the fire and stay clean. This is what we do. This is how we engage. This is how we interact with the opposition. We show mercy, we snatch from the fire and we stay clean. Real quickly, let's look at each of those, and then we're done. Each of those real quickly. First, we show mercy. This is not the initial response to people looking at opposition. That's why he addressed this in the greeting way back when we first started looking at Jude. Our, an, our initial reaction to opposition is to, is to raise fists, to start arguments, to push down, to cast out. And Jude says, no, we begin with mercy, compassion, knowing that we were once enemies of God, and yet we have been brought in. We have been rescued. Our heart's desire, even for the false teacher, would be that they would be saved, would be that they would be rescued from their bondage. We show mercy, and that mercy compels us to save people by snatching them out of the fire. That word save people there, the Greek word sozo, it's used over 100 times in the New Testament, 106 times. And 23 of those times where this word sozo is used, it's used to refer to saving in a sense of spiritual terms, to rescue someone from the penalty of their sin, which is what he means here. It's the same meaning of the word when Paul used it in that great 
evangelistic verse we hear often from 1 Corinthians, where he says in chapter 9, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save, sozo, save some. That's our desire, to save, rescue people from the flames where they find themselves. Which again, brings up another great question. Just like earlier with who does the keeping, your quick reaction to that might be, well, pastor, I can't save anybody. And to be your good Sunday school answer, Jesus does the saving, I can't do any of that. And we gotta ask the question, who is it? Just like we did with keeping, who saved the lost person? Is it Jesus who saves them or is it us who saved them? And once again, the answer is abundantly clear. Yes, yes. These two things are not at odds with each other. We would like an either or answer, but it is in Jude here, us who are commanded to go and save and us commanded to go and snatch from the fire. So again, we know There is no salvation unless God is at work. It is God's power alone that can awaken a dead heart to life. But the only means he has provided for a lost person to be saved is to hear the words of the gospel spoken from a human mouth. Consider it this way if you're having a hard time with figuring out who's who. If a man is on board a ship and gets stuck in a terrible storm, and the ship is rocking to and fro from the waves and the man just falls over the side of the ship and is restlessly drowning in the water. And suppose there's a concerned friend up on the deck who happens to look out and see his friend flailing around, arms coming up out of the water and out of a heart of compassion, he runs and he finds a life raft and he throws it out to the the seas and it happens to land near enough for the sinking man to grab hold of this raft And the man grips it with all his strength that he has. And the man on board pulls and pulls and pulls. Even though the currents are pulling the boy away, his grip on the raft keeps him afloat. And the concerned friend's pulling of the rope eventually leads him to be lifted out of the water, safe on the deck of the ship. And suppose all that happens. Who is it that the young man thanks for saving his life? Without the concern of his friend, he's, he's dead. I mean, dead man, sunk. But if that concerned friend doesn't have a life raft to grab onto and throw out to him, he's as good as dead. And in the same way, Jesus is the concerned friend that sees lost people flailing in the ocean, sinking and drowning. And he says, you are my life raft. He flings us into the water to rescue people from drowning, reaches us into the flame to pull out the burning. So who saved the the drowning man? The friend and the life raft. Who saved the lost soul? Christ and his ambassadors. That's what it means to be an ambassador. For Christ, this is what he's getting at in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says we're ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. God proclaiming to the entire world, you can be made right with me. Repent, believe. And how does he choose to do that? 
by flinging out his life rafts. You and me, ambassadors, the very ones that God seeks to use to save people, to snatch them out of the fire. It's interesting, he uses that word snatch there, a pretty strong, kind of abrupt, almost abrasive word there for how we get them out of the fire. When it's used in the New Testament, it's almost always used to show the struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy. It's the word that's used when he talks about no one will be able to snatch you from the palm of my hand. Same word there. This spiritual, uh, vicious word for the, the dueling between these two opposing forces. And it's an abrupt word to say, this is how we rescue them, abruptly. Not out of our desire to be rough or hard with people, but out of our awareness of the urgency of where they are. We resist that. We don't want to offend or put any tension in the relationship or maybe ruffle somebody's feathers. This isn't a new struggle. I, I love this. There's a 17th century reformed uh, pastor, Richard Baxter. Here's what he says about this. Just so you know, this isn't a 21st century problem. This is the 17th century here. He says, we are so reluctant to displease men and so desirous to keep in credit and favor with them that it makes us most unconscionably neglect our known duty. A foolish physician he is and a most unfaithful friend that will let a sick man die for fear of troubling him. And cruel wretches are we to our friends that will rather suffer them to go quietly to hell than we will anger them or hazard our reputation with them. I'm afraid of those words in my own life. A resistance to snatch someone from hell because I'm concerned with trivial things. He says, who will you save? Who will you snatch from the grip of Satan himself? He uses such a strong word because you're not just pulling someone out of a dangerous situation. You are releasing them from the grips of Satan himself. Snatch them. Who have you snatched from the fire? Who have you saved? In all your years of following Christ, can you, who can you point to and say, that is someone saved because of me. I didn't ask who you talked into playing fantasy football or who you got to buy those essential oils. I'm not asking who took your Hulu or restaurant recommendation. We seem to be great evangelists when it comes to those types of things. Who have you pulled from the grips of hell? Who will stand in heaven one day and thank Christ for his ransom and you for his reason? Has your voice ever opened someone's eyes to the goodness of Jesus and his cross and been the means that they were snatched from everlasting condemnation? Who have you saved? This is how Jude says we engage the watching world. With mercy, we seek to save them. It ought to be our greatest urge next to being reunited with Christ that we would be the means to rescue some. 
I was so challenged last week by the stories of our brother, Pastor Pratha in India and the passionate heart the church in India has for evangelism. You're talking about these people who are uneducated, illiterate, can't even read a book, but can plant a church. What they would do to have our access to podcasts and sermons and the books on our shelves. We don't have a knowledge problem that keeps us from sharing the gospel. We're not unqualified to be evangelists. Your silence to proclaim the gospel and my silence to proclaim the gospel is not from a lack of knowledge, but from a lack of vision. We don't truly and adequately see what we've been delivered from. We don't fully see what those around us who are still far from God still need to be delivered from. If we did... If we saw it, it couldn't stop us from running into the building to snatch them out of the fire. If we really saw it, we'd be running with all we had to get into that building that we might save some, whatever it would take. And then finally, he tells us to show mercy. He tells us to save some. And then he says this important phrase at the end we cannot leave out, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Stay clean in the process. Never underestimate the darkness of the dark. Find the line that gets you as close to the fire as possible to be able to pull people out without getting so close that you fall in. Find that spot, plant your feet there, and stay. Stay clean, hating even the garment stained by the flesh, recognizing there is enough darkness around you and still remaining in you to be a threat to your safety. Be discerning, be wise at how far you go, but get as close to that line as you can not so you can be as close to being worldly as possible, but so that you can be as close to rescuing people as possible. That's the heart's desire in all of this. We gotta be close to the fire, but not too close because the darkness is around us and the signs are clear. It's darker than it may have ever been. Right is celebrated as wrong, or sorry, right is now called wrong. Wickedness is celebrated. Common sense is thrown out the window as being just archaic, too old, no longer relevant. What was once whispered about in the dark is now paraded down the streets for all to see. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is safe. Our schools aren't safe. Our children aren't safe. The womb isn't safe. And even here, in our midst, the church isn't safe. What Jude and the apostles have predicted is coming true. Wolves are sneaking in. Truth is being subverted. Under the false halos of tolerance, 
kindness, even love. Demons disguise themselves as righteous. And the truth of God's word is being tainted. The mission of the church is slipping through the cracks as pastors and leaders and church members are bombarded and swamped with opposition and distracted by voices of the culture. Many have taken their hands off the plow, taken their eyes off the prize, let their guard down and gotten too close to the fire. And this is what Christ's bride is up against. This is why there's such a call to stand because it's what we see happening all around us. The enemy is advancing. But I sense in our midst a resurgence of warriors. I hear whispers, even today, of revival. An army that has not yet bent the knee to the world. An assembly of men and women full of faith People who know whose they are. A people who belong to Christ, called by God to leave the casket of their sin. Beloved by his son Jesus as proven by his bloody cross. Kept by the constant aid of the Holy Spirit. And called to stand and fight. And that's who I speak to today because that's who we are. That is the church. That's why we refuse to back down. That's why we stand with Jude and fight for the faith. It's why we link arms together, looking at the enemy's advancement and say, not on our watch. We are the resistance. We are those built on a foundation that refuses to be shaken. We are those who will stand and fight, trusting all the while that victory belongs to our God and we will not cave. God is assembling this army and he has been for years. I don't know why we don't sing it like we used to. The old hymns are full of this type of talk. 1862, Leela Morris wrote this hymn at the battle's front with the banner of love and of holiness unfurled, full salvation proclaimed to a sinful dying world, though the darts thick and fast from the enemy be hurled at the front of the battle, you will find me. That's where I hope he finds us, at the front of the battle, enlisted in his army, Many of you already have. And my question for the rest of you is, will you join us? There's a line been drawn in the sand and there's no longer any neutral ground. Sides must be chosen. Will you join us? Will you join the ranks of the redeemed ones? Those who have escaped the clutches of the enemy. Those who've been washed by the blood of the lamb. Will you join us? Those who have been commended to contend for the faith, those who have been called to snatch others from the fire, will you join us? We don't enlist or head to the front lines to win debates. It's souls we're after. We don't wrestle or fight with people, but with evil forces. We're here to take back the ones who belong to our king. 
We're here to announce to the enemy, you've held them long enough. It's love for mankind that compels us, not rage or frustration. It's mercy that sends us into the burning building to drag them out. Will you join us? Don't give your ear to the questioning voice of doubt that creeps in even now. Who can stand this test? Who is there to help us endure this pressure? Who can keep the church from being swept away by the culture? Who can keep us relevant? Don't let the doubting fool you. Jude gives us an emphatic answer in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He is able. We stand and fight because he is able. We build ourselves up in faith and pray in the spirit because he is able. We keep ourselves in the love of God because he is able. We wait patiently on his return because he is able and we snatch others from the fire full of mercy and full of a desire to stay clean because he is able. And we are confident that we will one day be presented before him spotless, blameless, without fault because he is able. Christian, your reason to stand today boils down to this. Because he stepped down from heaven, perfectly passed the test of the law, and yet bore the weight of the world's sin upon his own chest. Because he totally satisfied the wrath of God that you deserve, that I deserved, by emptying himself, his whole self, on the cross. Because he offers freedom, forgiveness, salvation, and life to anyone who would believe in him. Because even now he sits at the throne of the Father and pleads on behalf of his bride. Because of all this and more, I say to you confidently, he is able. And because he is able, he is worthy of all glory, all majesty, all dominion, all authority, and all of his church's service. Will you join us? We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.